Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. Your host. And here we and here we go, go, go. Welcome, everyone, to the Strength Coach Experience, episode number 31. Uh, today, I want to welcome Joe Ken. Joe Ken is the Vice President of Performance Education at Dynamic, Dynamic Fitness and Strength. Joe, welcome to the show. I uh, appreciate you coming on uh, and happy to, you know, chop it up, share information. Yeah, Joe, thanks a lot. It was easy to say yes since you're a fellow New Yorker, so that was a very simple yes as soon as I saw your request. But again, Thanks for having me on. I'm very humbled when people reach out and want me to share my experiences. So thank you. And hopefully we won't uh, bore the audience today. <laughs> well, I'm sure we won't do that. And thanks again for coming on. And of course, New York is New York. <laughs> no place like it. The city that never sleeps. <laughs> exactly. Still, even with everything going on, no, everybody's no. still up and trying to trying to manage it the same way. Uh, so why don't we jump into it growing up? I know we talked about, you know, a little bit of Long Island, but just go through the background, uh, you know, growing up early years, uh, athletics, and then we'll kind of segue into how you got involved in, in strength conditioning and coaching and that stuff. Yes, I grew up on Long Island. My parents were hard workers. You know, I would say we, I would, you know, in the end, we were middle class when I was growing up, we were probably lower middle class and they've pushed a gauntlet, but both of them were, were some, well, I would call they, they had trades and my dad worked his way up. My mom was a hairdresser. My dad was a sanitation worker who worked up by the time he was done to assistant superintendent. And, you know, you learn a lot from your parents and their work ethic. You know, my mom worked, you know, every Saturday morning, she was out the door and I didn't see her till dinner. And my dad was responsible for for lunch, for, excuse me, cooking breakfast, kicking us out until the end of the day and <laughs> out when you could actually go free play and ride your bikes around the street and your parents didn't have to worry about you because everybody in the neighborhood kept an eye on you. But I always say this because people in this generation don't understand some of it, unless you live in certain areas of the country. But my dad was what I call a traditional sanitation worker. That's where you put a bet, you put a barrel on your shoulder and you walk 20 plus miles a day in and out of people's yards, uh, picking up their rubbish and dumping them in a truck. So I actually did that for a summer while I was in college to experience that because I understood how much my dad had put into me. I mean, he, my dad worked three jobs while I was, while I was in high school to give, give me what I needed to get out of Inwood. And that's not a negative. I love Inwood. I've made me who I am. But I watched what he did and what he sacrificed for me. So my sacrifice was keep putting in the work so I could reward him as much as reward me by getting some type of scholarship and aid to move on. And, and I tell people this. I, I believe this 100%. My parents always told me, we'll do whatever we can to help you go to college. I said, look, if I don't get a scholarship, I'm going to work with dad. Like I had really just felt like I'm not going to go to junior college and, and all that stuff. And I had seen from, you know, like you, you see it now as an older person, but the retirement, the health benefits and, and the day that my dad worked, 
it was it's a really good job. I mean, he was home by 10 o'clock every day and had some of the best retirement and health benefits you could ever ask for. So I'm like, not a whole lot wrong with that. And that's why a lot of a lot of people at that day in that age bracket that work with my dad in that era, they all had second jobs. Who was a landscaper cutting grass? Who was a mechanic? Because it was set up. You know, that they were doing side hustles before we called it side hustles. <laughs> and then my dad would work several nights a week. He was one of the top rated bouncers on Long Island and Far Rockaway. So uh, a tough guy to say the least was, you know, he got his PhD in the streets and he wanted to make sure I didn't and neither did my mom. So I was fortunate enough to have some really good guidance and people there. I also was fortunate that when I got to high school, my high school coach actually played with my dad at the same high school I did. So that's good and bad, right? You got somebody looking out for you, but you also got somebody looking out for you. So the capabilities of getting in trouble in high school were limited. Plus my dad's second job was he drove the afternoon school bus. So he was always on <laughs> campus. So I, I, I was pretty much policed without being policed. But, you know, I, I could, like anything else, every, you, the inner drive that everybody has, what, what, is the, what is that one quantum leap, right? Or what is that one epiphany that makes you figure out this is the direction that you want to go in? I'll be the first one to tell you. I played on some my, – my junior year of high school's football team and even my senior year, I was – nowhere near the, the most talented football player on the team, especially my junior year. We, we were stacked. We had some really, really good football players. But, and, I, and I don't take this away from anybody, but my dad's commitment to make sure I did good in school got me out because I could have fallen into any trap, especially in the early 80s, where I'm just playing ball, going to school, and when I graduate high school, I'll get a job. And he saw more of that in me and was always a stickler for that because his, his grades were poor and he was not, and he saw the limitations down the road that put that put him in. And again, had a great life. I don't think he regretted anything because he was just like I am. I, I do it my way. If you don't like it, it is what it is. And I'll accept all bad and good as well as the positive. So a lot of things came from that, but I have a lot of thanks and praise to my high school football coach, Rich Marlow, because he introduced us to what the weights. Now, I lifted weights a little bit in my basement because my dad had a bunch of stuff that he had uh, uh, kind of pulled together through his years of traveling and things like that. And so my first un unofficial experience with weight was with the DiNapoli brothers, Mike and Dom, who lived around the block. And that was probably you know, really dibbling, dabbling in sixth grade or seventh grade or so. And then as it transpired and I started to play midget football, I, I had good football skills and I was bigger than most my age. So I always played two levels up. So I was nine years old playing with 11 years old. I was 11. I started my first high school game as a sophomore at 14 years old. So I'm, I'm a, I was 17 years old when I walked on the college campus as a freshman. So I always played a little bit above, you know, the age bracket, so to speak. 
But the biggest experiences that really showed me what work ethic could do outside of talent was when my dad knew, I guess my dad knew earlier than I did that, okay, this kid might actually be something. And the fact that my dad was like 5'10 and my mom was like 5'5 five, five, and after my ninth grade year, I'm 6'2", I'm, I'm lucking out because I'm not supposed to be 6'2 based off of, <laughs> based off of those genetic uh, heights for my mom and dad, for, for lack of a better term. So I was fortunate enough that going into 10th grade, I had the height and some of the size to perform, but it was before that, that my dad would bring me up to the, to the school at the high school after, after school to watch the football team lift. And there were, there were some just gigantic people at that time, you know, you're seventh and eighth grader, right? You're going in there seeing seniors who are getting recruited for scholarships and they're just, just, just intimidating to you. But I think he wanted me to see what it takes to play football at Lawrence High School first and what it would take to do anything outside of that. And those are those are stories and those are experiences that I can almost remember like vividly. I can remember him taking me up to the weight room on a Saturday morning to watch a, a particular Lawrence athlete, Pete Antonelli, who wound up playing at Maryland lift weights one-on-one with his dad in there and our football coach, Rich Mollo. In those days, man, it was just so impressive. And it was just amazing how strong he was. I, I can tell you, I wasn't as strong as Pete was when I left high school. I mean, this guy was just freakishly naturally bigger than I was when he left high school. And then just going up there and just learning what it took. The fact that one, you saw the fact that he was committed to doing something on a weekend when there was no other football player in there told me it takes more than what they're asking you. And the fact that my high school coach was in there with him told me he cares about people and giving them an opportunity. So my, my high school coach went on and played football at Virginia Tech before he came back to start coaching. And so he had an understanding. We were probably one of the first schools on Long Island, I would almost say maybe even the country, who had a legitimate, organized, structured, you had to lift weights or you weren't playing varsity. And it was extremely hard to play varsity at my high school as a 10th grader, let alone start. So uh, my freshman year, we were in the junior high and we only got to play four games that year. And they asked a couple of us to come up and play JV. And we went up to the JV and the four guys who was it four or five of us who wind up going up there for a week's practice. We wind up all four starting and being the best like four guys on the team. So it was almost like, it was almost a setup like, yeah, you'll be playing varsity next year. But then the, then the question is, how much playing time are you going to get and how much you're going to start? Because unlike what I found out later with my oldest son, at some states, they have a quarter rule where you, you can play a certain amount of quarters JV and varsity in the same week. I think in Kentucky, it was seven quarters. You could play four quarters and three quarters or however you mix it up. So it was really interesting because when my son wound up playing high school football in Kentucky, he was a quarterback. So on, but he, there was a senior quarterback when we moved. So he'd play quarterback on the JV and then start as free safety on the varsity. So it was an interesting thing to watch a guy. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. Play two games a week. And I don't know if that's at every state, but I have, Mm -hmm. I have heard that especially in those, like, I think it's in that Ohio, Kentucky, 
but again, I don't, I, I'm not, a, I don't want to confirm that because I have no information that says that's true or false, but I do know they allowed it in Kentucky and he got to play a lot of football that year. So fortunate again, I mean, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, no, no, but good. The, the, the experiences of me as a football player, the experiences of my dad's keeping a foot up my butt uh, to, to make sure academically I was sound. Cause that was the key, even for my dad, like I said, that was the key negative factor with a lot of the athletes in my era of high school at Lawrence was terrific athletes, poor grades. And even some of them to a point where, and this is no disrespect to these guys, man, we just didn't know. And that's no disrespect to the coaches, but back in those days too, which they don't know. And it's funny that my son is a welder now and has learned to trade, but you still had trade programs in the high school and offsite trade programs where a lot of our guys who played football spent half the day at trade school learning a trade and then would come back in the afternoon for your basic math and English and show up at football practice. So there was a whole different uh, demographic of learning that wasn't that that people are not exposed to today. You know, you wind up learning a trade either if your dad is a tradesman or you go to tech school after high school. But these this was an era where trades were huge and they're even more impressive now. You can find trade jobs that pay tremendous amounts of money. And when we go to college and we're starting off at 20 grand a year and you're learning a trade and you're starting out at, you know, 60, 70, and maybe even a hundred, depending on the trade you choose. So I was on that college track and it, and it worked out. I mean, again, I, I, I wouldn't be here today without my mom and dad, but in particular, I'm a dad's guy. I'm a daddy's boy. And Without without him, just the sacrifices that both of them made, I just think that it's crazy that I'm standing here today and what I've accomplished because they put me they put me in a position to be able to succeed. And then I was, whether I knew it or not, I was smart enough to listen to people. I I, I would not be here today, and I tell us you always my my high school coach is one of the top men in my life. But the, the key to me really being here is how did I get here? I had to hold on a second, man. This phone is blowing up and I sorry. I got two men. I'm gonna just shut it. I should have pause. Okay, we're good. Okay. So um where where were we at? So uh, we were talking about uh how your high school coach is an important part yeah, of so my so my high school part is one of my you know my top dogs. But the truth is I would not be here today without the tutelage, the expertise, and the commitment that this one man had in me as an athlete and as a person and trying to make me the best I could be. And that's Mike Stamilli, my offensive line coach. He was so, and our defensive line coach, he was so far ahead of the game. It was ridiculous that he could take a six foot two, 14 year old, 205 pound sophomore kid and give and make him a starting offensive tackle on the varsity of the of the largest school group playing in Nassau County and three years later he put me in a position where I chose to go where I went to school 
It wasn't one of those deals like, hey, you either go here or you don't go at all. I chose to go to Wake Forest. I, I wasn't, you know, I was one of the few guys in the history of Wake Forest that had multiple choices. Wake is one of those schools where you have very limited offers and it's kind of like, this is the biggest school for me to go to. I'll go there. I mean, here I am sitting in New York and I'm going to North Carolina. Now we had really good recruiters that came up North. We had like eight guys on the team when I got there that were from Long Island. I mean, I, I don't know how much you follow Long Island football when you're in that area, but the Baldinger, the Baldinger brothers, Gary, Richard, and Brian all played at Massapequa high school and Gary I played with Gary and he wound up in the NFL. Richard was in the NFL and Brian all played in the NFL. Brian wound up going to Duke. So they were recruiting Long Island hard back in those days. A lot of it, a lot of the schools down South were my, I was getting recruited hard by North Carolina and that's where I wanted to go to school. And they didn't offer me a scholarship. One of the reasons why I chose wake so I could play against them for four years. <laughs> so for, again, I, and we'll just jump into it after. So I wind up going to school for at wake. I got hurt. My red shirt sophomore, excuse me, my red shirt freshman year spring ball. I wind up missing a, another year. But in the end, I always look at what did I accomplish that other people wish they could accomplish and always look at the positives is I got to be a two year starter in Division One football. I started 22 straight games. I had higher aspirations than that. But in the end, there's a lot of people that wish they could say that they did that. So I look at it from that. So not to pat myself on the back, to remember that I accomplished something, something that was extremely hard to do. And I battled back from three knee, knee injuries and two knee surgeries to do it, where there was people that thought I'd never play again. Because back then, tearing an ACL and an MCL is like tearing an Achilles today. Mm -hmm. That's like That was the taboo. You did not want to tear. And, and I'm doing it at 18 years old when my career hadn't even started yet. And I'm wrapping up with my first spring ball in surgery and a cast for a month. So that, that put me on the path that, and again, because we are who we are. I went there to be a big fish in a little pond and go to the NFL. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate. The number one guy who came out of our high school, Lyle Alzado, was friends with my dad. I got to train with Lyle. And anything that you want to say That's about, awesome. yeah, you can say what you want about the alleged, and it's not alleged. He was, you know, he was on steroids, but I think he kind of overdid the, that's what killed him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of things to say, I don't, but here's what I'll tell you. And this is it. And I'm, and I'm sure how he did it. I don't want to get into the whole drug game had a lot to do with his rage, but my dad knew him when he was in high school, that guy's family upbringing mm -hmm. created that rage. Yeah. So let's get that out of here. And I learned a lot about work ethic watching that guy no one worked harder than him and this guy had already been in the nfl for close to 10 years when i first met him uh he he, he moved back to our area for the off seasons and i got to train with him at jack Lane with our old wrestling coach ralph rayola and it was a it was a sight for a guy like me that needed to understand like here's a guy who made where you want to go and he's working out and I call it like this because I learned this in the NFL, watching some of the greatest guys to ever play, especially two that just retired as Panthers yesterday, Greg Olson and Thomas Davis. The great ones train like they're going to get cut. Mm -hmm. and, that's that's why they, and that's why they last the way they do. And I think if you are a high school athlete, although a lot of teams don't cut, 
you should train like your coach is going to kick you off the team because you're not working hard enough and they're trying to be they're trying to find better that can that'll go a lifetime that has nothing to do with sports that will give you qualities in life that you can take to any aspects and any area of where you're developing and how you live and how you work that you will be a success if you go to with that type of mindset is going to work somebody's going to beat you just like Every year you go to a college football, they're trying to out-recruit you. Every year there's a draft, they're trying to out-draft you. Free agency, they're signing dudes to beat somebody else out. So you got to think that like every there's somebody they're trying to find behind you. And that and that's got to be a quality especially for athletes. You have to have that mindset of I have to outwork everybody regardless of talent. Because here's what I learned coaching team sports. You hear the saying, hard work beats talent. If talent doesn't work hard, I think there's merit to that because I saw it. But here's the hardest issue to overcome is when talented teams work as hard as the untalented teams. Because then you know what you get? You get juggernauts. You get the Alabamas of this era. You get the Southern Cal Trojans of the era of the 2000s when I was at Arizona State watching that dominance. You watch what Ohio State has done. These are extremely talented teams who put in the same quality of work that the developmental teams do. Yes. And, and, and when that's and uh, when everything's even, you you, it's, you better hope they turn the ball over a lot to get a chance to be successful. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, and the, the, the stuff you've been talking about, you know, great story. And, and I think that upbringing uh, similar to you, I grew up in the same sort of thing. All my uncles, my dad, all construction workers worked outside uh, and that work ethic was instilled, you know, at a young age. It was just you went out, you did your job and you did everything right. You know, my mom was a nurse. And I think it's interesting to talk about you don't really realize those things. As you get older, though, you realize how much you were taught because of the foundation that your parents instilled into you you know going through everything especially when you play sports it was I'm going to play sports and I'm going to work harder than everybody else but nobody sat you down and told you that it was you just watched your parents and learned and also I, I I'm very happy to say I think I was the last generation that went outside all day we didn't have cell phones yeah. we just <laughs> ran down the street and there was groups of kids everywhere and nobody knew you know where you were you think about it today if you walked outside without your phone you know you start getting nervous but back in the day you would just leave a note on the counter and you'd be gone for, you know, 10, 12, no food, nothing, just a yeah. bicycle. No, they held a lot of times they didn't want you to come home because they didn't have enough money to pay for lunch. <laughs> I know, but you know, like other things, like there's a lot of things you learn, like my high school coach, I'll never forget back in that day, you know, it was a little bit different as far as, you know, how you could get away with yep. stuff. And, and I remember the first time I got introduced to a college coach, it was from the university of Virginia. And I handled myself, like a putz. I, you know, I didn't look the guy in the eye. I, I, I wasn't prepared for the handshake. Although my dad had, you know, these were things that were instilled in me, but maybe I was intimidated, right? Mm -hmm. That a college coach wants to talk to me, you know, go, as a junior. I think I was a junior at the time. And I got an awakening from my high school coach. And a lot of the things he was saying were right. And I knew better, but you, you sometimes here's what I've learned too, and this is what's great about having a high school coach that you love and admire and can look up to, or any coach for that example, that you could is as much as as much as you're gonna listen to your parents, 
when someone else tells you the same thing, you generally respond more to that person than you do your parents. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what kind of occurred on that. And, and I will tell you this from that day on, I held, I held myself in the most professional manner talking to college recruits, us college recruiters from that day on that I prided myself in. I studied the, I studied like questions to ask them, not to stoop them, to let them know like, Hey, I'm doing my homework too. Mm -hmm. You're doing your homework on me. And I'm doing my homework on what I need to ask to make the best decisions for my next five years of my life and my personal and sports related growth. Absolutely. Those are, those are cool things. And again, fortunate that it all worked out for me that I got a scholarship and I was able to choose uh, to go where I wanted to go because that makes life a lot easier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you only have one choice it's a, and you have to pretty much take that choice, sometimes it doesn't work out. And I saw that with my oldest son. It was a very good experience for all of us. And for me to realize again how thankful I should be for my parents and my coaches for putting me in a position to have choices. Because when you're limited in your choices, as most people know, it's it's a much harder decision than you think. Yeah, absolutely. So, so life, you know, and I always say, man, life is a curveball game, right? I, I'm not, I played some baseball, and you said you worked for several years with the Mets, and you all know everybody wants to know can a guy hit a curve, right? Yep. Uh-huh. And at the end of the day, man, life is hitting a curve. Yeah, because it constantly changes. You know, you're you deal with. I think the best thing to do is all the stuff you're talking about. All that stuff nonchalantly kind of gets you ready for what's going to happen, even though it's it's not hundred percent, this is what's going to happen, or these are what you're going to go through, putting yourself through those things with weight room or challenging yourself at an early age, having those people in your life that tell you like it is and, and try to teach you things. I think the best thing you can do, and, and you've been talking about it is making sure that whether you're a coach or a parent, getting your, you know, your athletes or your children prepared for what they're going to face. You can't tell them exactly what's going to happen, but we can put them through certain things or give them certain challenges that are kind of similar to what's going to happen. And I think it's very important. You say you want to set yourself up for as many choices as you can, because that way you can, you can really weigh your odds out and find out what's best for you. If you have a limited number of choices, none of them might be what's best, but then we have to play the game of, well, this is okay. This one's not really good. And I hate this one. And then you're kind of going in there with, with a mindset. I think you're, you know, you talk about the perception. I talked about this on another episode where everything that happens to you can be positive or negative based on your perception. And even if something goes wrong, uh, if you take that as a positive, you can definitely turn that into something and, and kind of remember the experiences, but you can also take good things and turn them into a negative. And then, you know, you can also roll that in. And so I think that perception of the events in your life is very important as well. Well, I think here's one thing that ties into exactly what you said. Let's just remember this. Attitude is a choice. You, you choose to make certain assumptions on things. If you say something that somebody doesn't like, that's on them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They made the choice. Well, that's BS or not. That's fine. I think I'm just expressing myself. And if you don't like it, I'm cool with that. Right. Because you're not going to please everybody. But in the end, if someone doesn't care for you, that's on them. I mean, cause for everybody who doesn't care for you, there's probably 15 to 20 that think you're all right. So always stay true to yourself and remember, 
even even in yourselves, like like, hey, I don't like that guy. Well, why? Well, he's just this, this, and that. Well, I think he's kind of cool. Great, and and I and I respect that. Just like I always tell people, I respect and like are two different things. Mm-hmm. I respect a lot, a lot of people that. Some of them, I don't think they think I like them, but that's not the point. The point is, it's just some people don't fit your like cool, like cool, like your hangout crew, right? Mm-hmm. It's like personality clashes. Doesn't mean I don't respect their work, respect what they've accomplished, because I know how hard it is to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's a big difference in that. And again, and whether I like them or not, that's on me. That ain't on them. Keep doing you. What do you care? Like I said, for every guy who like I don't like, you probably got fifty thousand people who think you're the greatest. So cool. What are you worried about that for? I mean, that I, I tried the older I've gotten, I've gotten into like meditation and things like that. I need to pick it back up. But what I what I've really learned, and I've tried to relay this to our athletes, is stress the positives of what you've accomplished versus the negatives. Like I always tell our younger rookies to realize what, remember this, you put yourself in a, and I don't say it all like this, but you put yourself in a position to be cut by an NFL team. That sounds like a negative, right? Mm -hmm. But then ask yourself, how many guys in your senior class aren't here today that would trade your position with them in a second for them to be in a training camp and for possibly a coach saying, Hey, we, you did a nice job. We're going to have to let you go. I say that all the time. Like I didn't get, I didn't even get an opportunity to get cut. Now I, mine was medical related, but still I would have loved to at least been in a training camp to say, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't able to make it. Absolutely. I because, think that's a great point to do. And, it, and then it goes to, then the guy makes the team, right? This is the tough one for the guys. Because the NFL, man, the rules are crazy. So the guy makes the team, right? He's on the 53 roster. Come game one, it's all jacked up, right? Going to get in the uniform, going to go out. Well, seven guys don't get the dress because they want it to be so parity-driven. So they'll, they'll seven guys at the bottom of the roster have to be chosen who aren't going to dress because they want to – because they're all – there's this perception, again, perception mm-hmm. – at the bottom of the roster can make the difference in winning and losing because it's a depth game, right? Yep. So they want to even that out as much as they can. The NFL is an eight and eight league. It's your, it's your job to figure out how to win the extra ones. So they, they reduce it even more by saying, yeah, you can have 53 guys on your active roster, but only 46 can dress. So now it becomes a strategy game. And then that guy comes out and it's usually rookies they come out to the field pregame and you have to take them through a slight workout and they're all disappointed. And I said, Hey man, do you know how many people wish they were standing out yeah. here with you? <laughs> and let's remember on Tuesday, your money's still the same. Yep, exactly. No, because you're, they, you're... And I get the disappointment, right? They wouldn't be there if they weren't disappointed. And I remember talking to one of one of these uh, young kids and I said, just keep working and your time will come. Well, he kept working and pushing it and pushing it. And all of a sudden, a couple of guys get hurt. He's in there. Now he's starting. And four years later, he goes from undrafted free agent to signing for another team for 60-something million dollars, 30 guaranteed. You just keep fighting, man. You just keep, you know, like the Panthers say, man, you just keep pounding away at it and, and good things will happen. And it's the same thing for myself. 
you know, once I knew the NFL as a player was done, my, my next goal was I want to get there as a coach. What's the next, what's the next best way for me to get to the NFL? Absolutely. How did you, um, how, who, who was an influence in coaching? Did you, was it from all your experiences and just being around football, you knew right away you wanted to coach or did you meet another mentor while, while it's going to college and stuff that got you into coaching? Yeah, that's a great question because when I went to college, I don't think I was really thinking coaching, to be honest with you. You know, I went to Wake. Wake was hot, you know, one of the top non-Ivy League academic schools in the United States. Uh, extremely challenging. And I went there. I, I actually was going to be an economics major <laughs> until I took my first economics class. <laughs> and that was... Uh, I made two D's in college. That was one of them. Yeah. And I was a, luckily for me, I was, a, you know, I didn't have to work hard to do good in school. So I didn't, I was one of those guys that I'll put my efforts into trying to be the best football player and kind of, you know, and people say like, well, like, is that the right way to do it? No, probably not. I'm watching my youngest son attack academics as hard as he attacks athletics and golly, the dude's winning. I just came up in a different era. You know, they told me a 2.0 gets me a degree. So I was cool. Right. Absolutely. You know, the old C's get degrees deal. And <laughs> I, I grab basketball and I shot free throws instead of going to class. Yeah. So I always tell people kind of half joking because I had a couple of professors tell me, you know, if you put a little effort into this, you could be a Dean's List student. I say, yeah, I'm cool. Like I like partying and, <laughs> you know, all that other stuff. And, but like I always say, like I had a, I think my undergrad GPA was like a 2.45. And I always tell people, well, I overachieved. I was 0.45 more than they told me I needed. <laughs> so I mean, it's kind of a joke, but I, you know, but in the end, I will tell you this, if you're on scholarship, or, or you've chosen to go to college, you better get your, get your paper because they can't take that away from you. Someone's going to tell you, especially athletically, you're not good enough anymore. You, very few athletes get to call it on their own. Most of us are like, yeah, you're done. In my case, you're a medical reject. You're, your career is done. All right, I got to go to coaching. But no one is going to come to your house and take your degree. And if you're on scholarship and I know things are changing, dude might get paid this uh, name image likeness thing is cool. I'm, I'm supportive of it. Yeah, absolutely. But what I, what, what I'll tell you is they're taking from you every day that you're an athlete there. They're winning on you with the way you repay yourself is walking out of there with at least one degree especially in football and men's basketball. I can't speak a lot for the Olympic sports. I'm not sure how they diagnose summer school and summer training, but I know football in particular, you got kids going into school January before their true freshman year. Everyone stays this summer. Hell, you can walk out of there if you're, especially if you're a red shirt with a master's degree. My son, my son was a track and field athlete at Appalachian state before he transferred and he wound up with in five years and a summer with an undergraduate degree, magnum cum laude in exercise science and a master's degree in exercise science from app. So if you, if you are academically uh, gifted 
or you have the support system academically and you're going to spend the amount of time on campus with summer schools and a redshirt year, you should do whatever you can to get as many degrees as you can from that university because that's you paying yourself back. Yep. I think that's that's, that's you figuring out. So at the end, I was like, when I got hurt, I was like, well, there goes this. I got to actually pick up school. So the coaching thing came from, I love the weight room, always did. I don't know why, uh, and because it was always a structured, uh, well, unstructured at some time, but structured, I got introduced, again, through my high school program. And I saw what it did for me, right? It made an average guy better than average. Mm-hmm. Uh, it put me in a good point from a work standpoint that I outworked people enough to earn positions that would give me this chance to have some type of success as an athlete on game day. Uh, the, the capabilities of watching as my leadership grew on the team and the fact that the coaches trusted me as a leader to oversee certain guys who weren't as committed to the weight room as I do and put that on my shoulders as I got older in in my career really knew then I knew something was going on. And then it was just interesting to see how it all went. Long story short, I'm watching my, our strength coach, Joey Bullock, who again, another dear, forget about he's my coach, but he's a dear, dear friend. Like he, he is, I talk to him almost all the time uh, through either whether stupid stuff on social media, just call and, and chop it up because he was there for me when I didn't play a game of foot, I played five games of college football my first three years because of injuries. And I only had one place I could go to outside the training room where I felt normal was the weight room. And he was always there for me. And he had my back throughout the entire time I was there. So I'm watching this and I'm like, so I can get paid to watch dudes lift weights at that time, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm learning programming because I'm reading muscle and fiction and watching how stuff goes down. But in the end, I'm like, yeah, you know what, man, this might be too good an opportunity to pass up. So that's really, so I would say 1986 is when I was like, okay, I'm going to be a strength coach. And I dove all in coaches knew I was all in and it took off from there. And, so n- learning and watching Joey's mannerisms and the things that he was doing helped set me up. But for the most part, a lot of my mentorship was from self-study and reaching out to coaches and just learning what that meant in the, in the late 80s, mid 80s, and early 90s of what being a strength coach really was. Compared to now, it's archaic, right? Yeah, as as probably it should be. And there's a lot of cool things going on that from a, a newcomer or, or a newbie coming up that have, they have to know so much more than what I did. And right. And again, that's the evolution of life. That's the evolution of training. That's the evolution of growth mindset. That's the evolution of paying it forward and all that other stuff. Absolutely. But through, but through college, I was fortunate to be able to be a mentor to a lot of my, my athletes. And what I learned was, I had a gift like to to lead. I had a gift of work. I mean, and I had a, and I, we just made it fun. Like it was fun to train. Like for me, it was fun. It wasn't, it's never been a chore. Like I hate 
when guys go, oh, we grinded, we grind. I was like, I don't know when that word popped up in training, but I'm like, I love it. So it's not a grind for me. Like I loved being in the gym today and I'm coming off of a major injury. So I'm limited, but I love going in the gym. I hate when I don't get in the gym for the day. And so for me, it's never been a grind ever. Football, Football practice was more a grind. If you want to use that term than lifting weights was. And a lot of times with athletes, it's the opposite because a lot of times it's, it's hard to educate the athlete on the value of training outside the sport. I think that'll always be, that always needs to be understood when you're a strength and conditioning coach for, for a sporting athlete is it's never going to be the primary focus because the primary focus is the sport of choice. So you have to learn about investment. You got to learn about their mindset and how much value they, they put into it. And then you've got to work and find ways to, you know, Jedi mind trick them that there's value to this, regardless of how much input you think it has and your specific capabilities as a sporting athlete. Yeah. I think it's an important point because when we bring the athletes in there, if they look at it as a grind, that's just more stress on the brain and the mindset. It's supposed to be a place where we can accomplish goals, get better, but our mind shouldn't be as overstressed as it's going to be in practice and in games. And I think you're right. You know, very interesting bringing up the grind mindset. It shouldn't be a grind. It shouldn't be, oh, my God, we went in there at six in the morning and it was all terrible. You know, it should be. A, a place where you want to go in there to get better and understand. And I think it's very important. You brought up the understanding, right? Getting your athletes to understand what we're doing, right? And word choice is a big deal too. We've talked about perception and we talked about grinding. If we perceive that as, Oh my God, this is terrible. We have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and lift weights, which I hate. We're already going to have a bad day, but now, you know, if we go in there and say, Oh, we're going to get better now. And this isn't a grind and this isn't supposed to make me hate this right? It's going to make me better on the field. Now we have, we take that perception and we change. And I think it's just, like I said, with the grinding word, using vocabulary is a big deal because we can immediately, we can flip over uh, some of the stuff that we talked about. I just want to go back a little bit through, through high school and through college. What are some things that you did back then that is, that they don't use today? Was it a lot of powerlifting and, and cleans? You talked about like the structure of high school. What are some of the predominant things you used? Well, I think, and again, this is no, you, everybody knew what they knew. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. And I think it's kind of what limited me on certain things athletically was because I was a bigger kid and because of what people's perceptions again were when it came to training, I got thrown into a weight room and started lifting weights and never knew if, you know, and couldn't do a chin up. You know, I'm saying couldn't, you know, could I have even done a body weight lunge correctly or certain things from that relative strength that always impressed me. That's why I'm always impressed as much as people have their opinions on it of watching some of the things that professional CrossFit athletes can do. And and like how uh, some of the kids that I grew up with school were able to just, you know, climb a rope during the old uh, presidential physical fitness challenges yeah. where oh, you would be able I to get patches, <laughs> you know, you, you know, everybody, you see one kid go up there and do, you know, five or six chin-ups and you couldn't even do a 10 second ISO chin-up hold and hang because you had no relative strength. And then watching kids climb a rope and you had no shot. And then, in, then what, you know, so there's a lot of things that 
I think we missed the boat on no, no reasoning. There's no one to blame. It was just the way training was where I think now and something that I've led a charge on in, in high school and colleges is developing a structured introductory plan that spends a lot of time on movement and body weight capabilities. I call it internal resistance versus external re resistance. If we can learn how to do things, with who we are, I think we weren't, we wind up winning when we put things in our hands or on our back and move externally. And, and if you really look at it from the overall standpoint of when you're dealing with athletes in a sporting sense and a team sense, like I have, you look at those athletes who are generally pound for pound, the strongest athletes you coach are generally, and I'm talking about like, squat, bench, clean, whatever you want to use as a weight room measurable. Generally, they're also the ones who are more capable with relative body weight stuff. They generally can do the most quality chins. They actually could do a rope pull. They're good at glued ham raises. They're good at some form of pistol squat. They're, they're very good in single leg motions and capabilities like that. So I think that that's something that I didn't, I wasn't recognized because, you know, we did most of our stuff was traditional bench squat, deadlift or some very, so a lot of stuff was bilateral capabilities just to build general strength. And, and as the profession has unfolded, we've learned that there's a lot more to it to training athletes than utilizing a sport to train a sport. And that was one of the things that helped me develop my plan of programming for athletes was, dissecting the fact that you can't train a sporting athlete as a power lifter. You can't train them as an Olympic lifter. You can't train them as a bodybuilder, but because those, because those sports inherently use the weight room as their practice field. And now we're trying to use the weight room as a, a subsidiary of getting you better for your sport. Obviously we have to draw from those sports. Well, now you have to dissect what, what principles of training and what movements are needed to help with athletic-based strength training. So there's a, whole, there's a whole different perception of how to train. And then this organization, we can, you know, that, the X's and O's is for another time. So the evaluation process going through was we, we did a lot of the typical powerlifting stuff, but we also were introduced at my high school. I didn't know it was called high intensity training at the time. I just knew it as some of the Penn State principles where all our auxiliary work was like one set to failure. Mm -hmm. So our lap pull downs, our triceps and stuff like that. So it was a real cool uh, combination of things that our high school, my high school coach put together that as I got older and learned, I was like, damn, we, we had he had mixed and matched almost concurrent training before we knew what, what concurrent sequencing was or training different modalities within the same workout or the same week. Uh, so it was, we were ahead of the game and, and it was caught. I mean, we won a lot of games while our, my high school, I think has the most wins as a high school football team in Long Island history. Yeah, no, it sounds like, I mean, just from you're describing it, it seems like even the systems now, some, a little bit of, West side, if you will, sprinkled in yeah. one main lift. And then everything else is after that is an auxiliary lift to get you better at your, not only the lift you just did, but the sport, but you're not 
only focused on those three things. I mean, similar to you, I, I graduated high school in 2006, but that's what we did too. We did squat bench and clean and that's all we did. And, you know, we used to run a mile and then come in and do the stuff on the weight room. So even then, you know, the, 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 stu- the, in the last probably 10, 15 years, things have grown so much. Cause I did the same thing. We had a weight room look like somebody's garage and our football team won the state championship. So every sport, cause I played basketball in college, every sport, that's what we did. And you talk about the grind. I hated, I'll be honest, everybody out there listening. I hated it because we did three <laughs> lifts and that's all we did. And I didn't get any better. I saw no changes. Yeah. I didn't, I just felt like garbage. Cause like you said, nobody, nobody taught those auxiliary lifts. And I think one of the things that you brought up, earlier that kind of kept up what before the science took off is guys that are good at those lifts are athletic and they have the genetics to do all the other things but people would say oh well he squats 400 pounds that's why he moves efficiently bilaterally or unilaterally when in in an essence it's the other way around he can squat 400 pounds because his capabilities are different yep and again that's and, and that's what i'm saying so there's nothing wrong with utilizing bilateral movements as part of the general strength buildup, but there's so many other capabilities that have to be utilized. And then that's just exposure and experience. Uh, and I, again, we could talk a lot of, about a lot of things that have come full circle and what's been introduced and what's been, you know, kind of, you know, you, you bring in what's useful, you throw out what's useless, kind of a pawn off of Bruce Lee saying, but every, 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 you're trying to find that status of, flatlining things right where everything is capable your capabilities are here i mean obviously they're going to raise and maintain but you've got to be well aware that at certain periods of time what we do as weight coaches i just like to call it weight coaches i mean i know it's an encompassing thing is is the priority of the preparation with the conditioning the speed and all the other things that go under that nomiker and then there's other times which is predominantly the largest parts of the year where the sport is the sport is number one. And that's where the true programming and understanding what is asked of an athlete from a practice, a competition schedule, because, and I've said this for years, and I've hearing more coaches actually saying it now, is the most uninterrupted time of a competitive training year for an athlete is the in-season. So that whole maintenance period or is wrong. You cannot maintain, like if you go, the year we went to the Super Bowl, if you count preseason games, that's a 26-week season. If you're not pressing and trying to find ways to test strength and you're just in this, well, we just got to maintain, you cannot maintain. You're going down. Yes, so you got to find different ways to elicit responses Mm-hmm. without taking away the gas needed for Saturdays or Sundays, game day, as well as practice. So it's an it's a ebb and flow of watching practices, intensities, and now with GPS and player load, that helps yep. you gauge that. And then what you're doing in the weight room as far as volumes and intensities to make sure that, one, you're maintaining – again, I don't like, – you're maintaining certain qualities while raising others – but you're not detraining and losing qualities. Yep, absolutely. So it's a again, that's the creative and that's the artistic part of training with the science kind 
kind of dictating how to be creative, if that makes sense. Yeah. And like I said, that, that maintenance word, I'm a big, I hate it too, because you're not maintaining. If you're, if we're not increasing the level of even the preparedness of the athletes, we're going backwards because you have that, you spoke about it, that dependent variable or the independent variable, excuse me, of those 26 weeks with games, you can't change that. And every time they go on there, if they're not, you know, matching that with the things in the weight room at a, on a positive level, they're going to go backwards. So the maintenance thing isn't a, isn't a big, you know, is a myth because you're not, they're actually getting worse and your general preparation is going backwards. And I think, you know, it's, it's still brought up today. We, we did it in the minor leagues. You know, we would do all this power output stuff and then the season would start and we would do three sets of 10 of, dumbbell bench and rows and i'm like what are we doing you know and then i think the hard part for for a lot of people they get in terms of certain places and this is why you know you talked about having experience and mentors it's very important to understand where you're going in their philosophies because if you end up in a spot where you're doing this maintenance your athletes will start to ask you and this was a big thing for me i had to try to like tailor an answer of why we were doing this when in the back of my head i'm like this is a disaster Yeah. And again, that's just learning and experience. Right. And that's what, and that's what part of it is, is I've learned a long time to tell you, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I know what I need to know. And at this point in my career, I know I don't care to know. (laughs) And, and I'm okay with that. And I understand there's certain things that like, there's certain things that I don't want to know. Cause if I ever get an opportunity to put together a, a staff again, I'll hire that person. But on the other hand, my son, who's coming up the ladder, he's going to need to know that stuff. Yeah, and it's very interesting because you bring it up. Because doesn't, when, yeah, when you hire people. He won't, he won't be qualified. And for me, I always, you know, in the hiring process, you always want to remember that you never want to hire yourself. Nope, absolutely. I, I think it's I, – I spoke about it in a previous podcast about – the business of everything. And when you're hiring people and staffing them, what happens a lot of the times is you bring in people who train and are exactly like you. When in reality, to be successful at this stuff, you need somebody that does things or is great at things that you really don't know. And you know that it will all kind of work together because if you bring in a bunch of people that are exactly like you, you won't progress or they'll kind of be that uh, you'll, you'll have banging heads a little bit. Well, and the other thing is it helps you learn, right? Yep. I mean, I, I always tell people it's hard. Our job is so multifaceted. Mm-hmm. As you know, it's hard to be an expert in more than one thing. Yep. And that's where sometimes I think we get lost because there's a lot of people nowadays trying to learn a little bit about everything. And then they're trying to apply it like an expert. Yep. <laughs> and that's hard. Generalization. Yeah. And, I, and I'll give a lot of the this era of strength and conditioning coaches a lot of credit for the, some of the information I see being put out. Very, very impressive. But I think we just can't, we have to remember, we can't lose the fact that at the end of the day is, is all that quality of information you're putting out, are you able to present that in a logical and sensible uh, case to your athletes? Because all that stuff doesn't mean anything if they don't comprehend the mission. Absolutely. And that, and that goes back to where, we can talk all about analytics. We can talk all about data. We can talk all about measurables, but the communication part of knowing what an athlete feels is the most incredible amount of research and feedback you can get when you're developing your plans. Absolutely. I completely agree. 
understanding your athletes, the environment you create in the weight room and when they come in is the most important thing because if your athletes trust you, they'll do anything for you and you can get that feedback that you need. Because if you have guys, even if you have a guy who's great in the weight room, but he doesn't talk to you, you know nothing about him, you're never going to get to that point or you're never going to be able to push him to the best of his ability because we don't have that communication factor. Because you might find out that they are good at something or there's something else that they don't like, or just in general, and they come in and have bad days, you're able to gauge your program based on, you know, how they're feeling or what they went through or their sleep and things of that sort. And that's the one thing I've really learned in the NFL was the amount of auto-regulation with those types of athletes based off of day, feel, and and because they're so talented, I always said, I, I got to train Julius Peppers, one of the greatest players in NFL history, future Hall of Famer for his last two years in the NFL. And at that point in time, Julius was just a natural golly, man. He just is such an impressive athlete, as was Cam Newton. But those guys like that, it's small. I called it small doses of excellence. Hey, man, this is what we need to accomplish today. Let's kill it. And we're off to the races. And because they're so talented and because they understand, and especially at that point in Julius's career, I mean, he was a 17-year veteran. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's fourth all-time leader in sacks in the NFL. They get it, right? Because they've been in, they understand it. And to me, it's an appreciative, it's an appreciation of what they've accomplished that you're able to talk to them and figure out what they need. And I, I know people talk about like minimal dose. Mm-hmm. I, I believe there's a lot of value in that to give them the, the least amount of positivity they need to excel. Because again, I go back to fuel in the tank, especially in season. I got these guys have to wake up Sunday in the best capabilities and the best emotional quotient and emotional uh, sense of I'm invincible. Or, and that's the, that's the thing that you're trying to build through them is, Hey, I'm well-prepared this week. I wake up Sunday. There's nothing else I could have done to better prepare yourself. Like you learn early as a strength coach, when you think the strength program is more important than the practice and guys are like, man, I'm sore. I can't get through practice. Well, that's on you. Yep. No, I think that's an amazing point. And you bring up that tank. You have to make sure that what you're doing in the weight room is directly helping them in the practice field. Cause if they can't play, you're not helping them. You know, and, and that's the thing. And I, I think it's a big point. You bring up a lot of people are like they get caught up on the sheet. I call it, you know, they they print out a workout on Monday and this is what they have to do on Saturday because it's written down here. And a lot of people get caught and you're like, no, these are not the things that we have to do. We have to make sure that they're good. So if they don't sleep. We have to cut things off. You know, and I think that's that kind of you kind of get caught a little bit in that. I guess it's like a, a wash cycle in a wash machine. You know, if you write it down, because I've been around coaches that do it, too. Hey, this is, this is what we're doing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This we're doing on Saturday. But if a guy has a bad day on Friday, we have to get rid of it. We can't rely on the sheet of paper or the, the constant planning. Well, when I, I can't remember what, what year it was. I know it was, it was either late in my Utah tenure or early at Arizona State. And it might have been Arizona State. My, my, my two assistants at the time, uh, Mark Uyama and Cheyenne Petrie, we called it OTS, off the script. And I'd always tell him, okay, we're going to go out there today and I'm going to blow the whistle and we're going to go OTS. He go, I go, I don't know what we're going to do yet. Just follow my lead. And then, and then Uwe would go, what are we doing today? And I'd go OTS. And he said, okay, I'll FTL. You know, it's like <laughs> we were hashtagging stuff before we even knew what the hell that meant. But yeah, I mean, you have to, 
you have to, again, throw a cur- once in a while, you got to throw a change up. And as you get older and you understand the dynamics of relationships and, and as your eyes, again, this, this day and age, there's a lot of monikers you can use to test readiness and awareness. But in the end, a lot of it is just asking. Mm-hmm. Hey, and, and when you build that level of trust, generally the guys know the one good thing about the strength coaches, I don't control your money and I don't control your playing time. So you can be a little bit more free with me or with art, with us as people in those positions. And you can be hey coach, man, I just don't have it today. Cause they're never going to tell their position coach going to practice, man. I just don't have it today. Absolutely not. Or the trainers. Yeah. I mean, it's just, they're not going to do it, but for me, cause then, okay, well then go out there, do the best you can in practice. We'll figure it out when you get in. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, that's where you got to be. Again, you got to be a professional and you got to make, you got to make a decision that's in the best interest of the athlete, which in retrospect is in the best interest of the team. Cause if a guy doesn't have it and you still ask him to do more, that's going to affect Sunday. That's going to affect Saturday. And depending on what type of sport you are, if you're in baseball or, or in the basketball with multiple games a week, one, one small mistake by you from a volume intensity or training standpoint and that he's an everyday player, that could make him have a terrible three-game stand. Yeah, no worries. And, and then and then that and then that then now the guy's now the guy's in a funk, which turns into a what 15-game slump. Yeah. All because you didn't want to adjust some volumes of intensity because the guy had a bad deal. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to constantly change those volume and intensities and we bring up the analytics. I think it's great now that they can do that. Um, I just want to go back to, so when you were in college and in the NFL, what are some of the techniques and like philosophies that you use just in general uh, when, when you were training with the guys and how, I guess the second part too, how did that change going from college to the NFL? Because I know you said about, you know, giving them the least amount of, of, uh, of work to make sure that they're at the highest level. Yeah. So obviously in the college, college you're developing, right? Mm-hmm. So there's going to be, there is, there is a premium on, I shouldn't say a pre, I, I, I'll say that in my program, there was a premium on one rep maxes. It was just something that was a indicator to us. Is the programming successful? Are we doing things right? And then it helped us evaluate and how to build programs for individual improvement areas in some cases and in position groups like to set some position group norms. Like the big question in most team sports is how strong's enough, right? Where everybody goes, you can't be strong enough. But there, but there, is, some, there is some non-truth to that because there's different ways to be strong. Mm-hmm. Like if an athlete, say an offensive lineman, if he can squat two times body weight, and most guys now are 300 plus, does squatting 2.1 times body weight going to make him any better? Probably not. But what you'll find is their, their single leg strength might be not comparable to their bilateral strength. So now, okay, their bilateral strength is exceeding their single leg strength. Let's continue to figure out, let's pull back the overall weekly volumes of bilateral work but continue to do it and then increase the volumes in single leg modalities, whether it be a rear foot elevated squat or what I call an in-place movement or split squat to a vertical 
movement pattern, pseudo single leg step up or a horizontal pattern lunge or a body weight pistol squat variation to find ways to enhance strength in other ways. That's one thing I learned as I got older, where I was in that moniker, you never could be strong enough. And then it's like, well, yeah, they squat 700, but like I, like I, as a power lifter, single leg strength was not anything I needed allegedly. Mm -hmm. And what I found was, you know, I squatted 650 in single ply gear and had a hard time doing lunges with 95 pounds. Yeah. Now, as I got older, I'm, kind of rebuilding myself through improving my single leg work because what I think it helps is especially like for me at this point single leg and independent limb work helps to the athlete naturally improve on compensations yep yeah, and I, I and just talking to therapists talking to guys that I oh, and women I hold in high regards when it comes to their knowledge of movement and independent limb work, I find that even in my own self, like if I do say a rear foot elevated squat pattern in my readiness program, before I do a bilateral squat, I feel much more for the lack of a better term, even than if I do bilateral stuff, because I'm not, I'm not isolating my issues, if that makes sense. And I'm talking from a very much a layman's terms. If you talk to a PT, they probably would spit that out and make my, you know, make me sound like a kindergarten. But I'm a practitioner that knows that I need those people's experience to help me figure things out. And then I relay it to my athletes in layman's terms. So there, those are the things that I think I've learned. And at the NFL level, because you don't have to, most of those guys have, are strong enough. They can do almost anything you ask. I remember early in my career, and, and I know he'll let me say his name because we're tight, is Charles Johnson was one of the strongest guys I coached. And we're doing a two-board pr bench press. And he hits 405 for one. And he gets off and I go, man, you could have did that five times. He goes, the card said one. <laughs> so the next time I put down three and he rips off three. So it's like they can do what you want. But, in that, but at that point in time, you know, he was already one of the best defensive ends in the NFL. What more does he need to prove to me? So then you start finding different things that he needed to work on. I mean, we, we had to work more on posterior chain with Charles and, and certain things like that. So that's, the NFL model allows you to do some really cool things off your base because those guys know what they need. When you're with the college level, you're teaching them to learn. And hopefully if you've done your job, by the time they're a senior, they can express themselves more. And that's where we developed our quadrennial plan that each year the programs change. Because like you said, you do the same thing over and over again, like you were saying, and you didn't like it. Well, you hit stagnation, and that's where you find out there's a reason why athletes teeter off on those types of programs and their, and their progress decreases and or stops and gets stagnant because the adaptability is over. So constant variability and changing throughout several weeks of a program help the athlete to respond to new adaptations. And that's what we were looking at over a, what I considered a quadrennial plan. I looked at like – a, 
a, excuse me, I looked at it like an Olympic athlete because most of the athletes I would coach in high school and in college would be in four-year blocks. So I looked at it like, okay, quadrennial plan. Really at the end of the year, at the end of the day, your senior year is your money year. Mm -hmm. So that's what I wanted to expose them. And this took a lot of time. I mean, I learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes in programming, introducing certain techniques too early in an athlete's career and they weren't prepared like chains and bands and dynamic effort before they really understood what training meant would be one of them. And, you know, I jumped the gun on that. I was one of the very fir first guys to implement West side stuff because of my powerlifting background in the mid nineties, when I was at Boise state, we were doing chains already and dynamic effort work. But I learned over time, like, okay, you're exposing, try to build your toolbox and go from a, a general practitioner to a, to a craftsman. So you're starting out with, you know, a generic, a generic hammer from wherever. Right. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you're a, four years later and you're a craftsman, you know what hammer to buy. Exactly. <laughs> like you need this hammer to be legit. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with training. You start off year one in block zero and you gradually bring up to a point where now you're prepared and you will be able to bring more capabilities and more transferable work from the weight room, hopefully to your athletic endeavors, because you will be able to comprehend and understand what the intent of certain things are. Absolutely. And you take it from your experience and you're able to gauge those athletes. I think that's awesome. You did a quad because your freshmen aren't going to lift like your seniors, right? You're, you know, you want to bring them along slowly because as your body develops, you know, you're able to push them a little bit more. Joe, just for everybody out there listening, I mean, I'm a big fan of Louie. Can you just go through a little bit of dynamic effort, overspeed eccentrics and stuff, just so that everybody kind of understands the, the base of that and, and what the purpose of the, those type of training is? Yeah, so I, I will tell you this. I, I'm a big believer in reading between the lines. So I take, I take what's out there, and then I see how it's applicable to us. I never really did overspeed eccentrics with our guys on dynamic work because I didn't think that they were prepared or could understand what that meant. Um, so we always did basically a fairly controlled eccentric with a, with a, con a maximal concentric acceleration intent. It was just I felt like that was the best way to train non-professional lifters. Just like I, I trained them, you know, there's, a, there's one way. I never explained to them because I till to this day have a hard time with the relaxing the hip flexors on box squats. Yeah. We never talked about that because if I was having a hard time figuring out and I trained West Side for my last phases of a competitive power lifter, how, how are kids who – some of them who didn't even want to lift weights going to figure it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, end, that end range relaxation yeah. is very dangerous. But what, what you look at is you look at it again, and I'll relate this to what we talked about, about using the complexities of the, the three major strength sport disciplines of powerlifting, weightlifting, and bodybuilding. What you find, what Louis exposed to was the dynamic effort method, the maximal effort method, and the repetitive effort method, which was from Zatsky Orsky's, I think it's the science and practice of training. Yep. And what, once those terms were exposed to me, those kind of replaced explosive strength, absolute strength, and hypertrophy. Because when you look at what you're asking the athlete to accomplish in those three things, 
those were the strength components that you learned from traditional Tuta Bampa, Mike Stone, and Steve Fleck. But I like Mac, I like the terms better. So I went with those terms. And what Louie really did was, and this helped me really transpire my, my take on implementing Olympic lifts for a specific reason as, and, and separating certain lifts based off of what their components were thought to be. But the, I'll start with the dynamic effort method. What dynamic effort method really introduced to me, and again, every, all, all credit goes to Louis Simmons exposing this to me. And if I wasn't a competitive powerlifter reading Powerlifting USA, I wouldn't have been at the forefront of West Side in athletics. That, to me, taught me what the true motion of specific loads, specific percentages, and what intent meant. Mm -hmm. That was the first time that intent became a big word in my vocabulary of training. And, and what we learned is if you, if you have the specific amount of load correctly, the percent is correct, time is correct, and your intent is to move something fast, any any exercise can be you can be done explosively. But now my good a good colleague of mine and a and a and a very smart strength coach in his own right, Todd Hammer, brought this up when it comes to Olympic lifts. He said the difference between Olympic lifting and dynamic effort lifting is in dynamic effort lifting, the intent is to be explosive. Mm -hmm. But in Olympic lifting, you have to be explosive. Oh, I like that. So, and that's not his, that's a paraphrase quote, but I, I use his quote all the time when it comes to why I implement variations of Olympic lifts in, in a athletic based training program. But Louis, the dynamic effort method that Louis introduced through Zatsiorski really taught me about intent. And that changed the whole game for me because my planning from a cyclical standpoint was based off of a rotation of heavy, moderate light, the traditional heavy, moderate light phase. And light was like a recovery day, right? But now with dynamic effort, I was able to take the emphasis of light and make that dynamic effort. So now that light day had a specific intent. Not only is the load light, but now we have the intent of we need to move it fast. Yeah, and we're still maintaining that. We're not losing a week, if you will. Right. So that's how I utilize the dynamic effort. Maximal effort speaks for itself. As guys get older, there's more rotation of maximal effort movements. What I learned through experience was because my guys and my athletes aren't professionals, they can't change exercises in a week. They need time to adapt. So it took me again. This was trial and error, learn, make mistakes, move on. And, and we were doing a 5-3-1 model before a lot of people. We wrote an article uh, max effort training for the front seven that was published in early mid 2000s that we had learned through experimentation that one athletes cannot do a rotation every week of max effort work they're not they're not capable and they're not experienced enough to go from one one variation of movement to another so we went from rotating every one week to every two so we went to, okay, we'll introduce a movement. We'll do threes mm -hmm. to, get them, to get them rolling, and then we'll go to ones. And then what I know needed was, well, my guys still need some type of volume. 
some type of volume capabilities. And that's where it went to, okay, week one, we did a max five RM. Week two, we did a max three RM. Week three, we did a max one RM. And then we changed the cycle. And that's how we created a max effort rotation for our, our upper block guys. And, and remember, like you said, a freshman shouldn't train like a senior. But, but like we were talking about, the growth and the evolution of what we're doing but that's how it was always done. I mean, we were one of the first programs to implement that kind of programming. And that was in the like 2003, 2004. Up until then, the primarily thing was guy came in and you lifted weights. Mm-hmm. And that program, linemen lifted with linemen, whether you were a freshman or a senior. And again, that wasn't that it was wrong. You're, you're, you're just building a profession or you're building, you're learning through the trials and errors of others, and you're trying to push the gauntlet to learn and and figure out how to benefit the athletes first and foremost. At the end of the day, program design and implementing whatever you are, whatever tools you're trying to implement, shouldn't be about you showing other people how much stuff you can do. At the end, does it? are you benefiting the athletes? Are your athletes truly benefiting from all the things you're introducing? Like I, I really have... Um, not to take away from this, but I have a, I want to say an issue, but I guess it's an issue with high school coaches introducing so many, what I would call advanced programming and oh, absolutely implement agree with you. Yep. Because here's what happens. It's like the toolbox and it's growth, right? We just said, if I train everybody the same, somebody falls. But if I'm introducing all these different components at an early age, then their adaptability is at an earlier age. And their, and their overall growth and development from a general physical fitness standpoint is going to get stagnant before others. Yep. It's the same thing like I don't when, – when you're watching adolescence, nothing matters till puberty. Until everybody catches up, that 10-year-old who hit puberty before the other 10-year-olds and dominates sports – by the time they're in high school, generally what happens? The other kids have caught up, and some of them have surpassed. It's the same thing with, you know, the kid who's got the X on his helmet because he weighs too much and he can only play on the line in Pop Warner football. And then six years later, the guy's a dominant, you know, running back and or linebacker tearing up the league because puberty hit. He lost some fat. His athleticism caught up to the rest of them, and now he's not the kid standing around with the X on his helmet. He's the one everybody else is watching. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think that's phenomenal. You bring up that toolbox, and also you bring up that the failure part, right? I think one of the main issues today, um, you know, and in, in as we evolve and all the stuff is great, but people are afraid to fail. You know, you have to understand that you take Louie, right? I did the same thing. I listened to all his podcasts and I had an understanding. And then I took his system and I put certain parts of it into my in-season baseball training. So I didn't go through the entire West side. You'll kill somebody if you try to do that. But I knew that if I did some of the max effort stuff and use some of the overspeed stuff, I could maintain that serum testosterone in season without beating up my guys so that they could go out into the field and perform at the highest level. But I was able to carry them along and make them stronger as we went. So we could play those 56 games in college and then eventually, you know, the hundred there. But I want to emphasize that point of, you know, everybody listening out there, when you start, you have to be able to fail. 
you have to be able to take a program and you have to implement it. And, and, you know, you don't, obviously you don't want to hurt the athletes, but you have to be willing to see what happens because a lot of times I think people, they want one cookie cutter end all be all program. And then they want to, they want to master that, right? We talked about that problem, that, that negative surrounding mastery, they want to master the program and then they want to use that as their one thing. And that's the only thing that they're going to, you know, they're going to want to use and then they don't change and who suffers the athletes. And then just to touch on what you talk about in high school, I think that's a great point. You know, people read books. There's so much information out there. They, they bring, they want to introduce all this insane stuff to kids that are 15. And then what happens is a, they're not ready or B they don't allow enough time within certain phases or by the time you get a kid in college, he hates certain exercises because the coaches has beat him out of him yeah. from eighth grade on. Yeah, and there are a lot of valid points there. And that's and and and, and again, I'm not here to judge you. Mm-hmm. People ask me my opinion. It's like I said, you I I I reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> and I and I ultimately know people are gonna agree to disagree. That that's the great point of of what we do, because there are no really absolutes. The only absolute is caring for the athlete. And if your belief system is how you believe the athlete should train, then that's, that's your choice. And you'll have the successes, the failures, the positives and the negatives that go with it. Just like I, I do with mine. Uh, luckily for me, the things that we've accomplished have been highly sustainable since 1992. So we've done something correctly, but that doesn't mean we're continuing not to, to try to find even the simplest forms of improvement to give the athletes the best conducive way to, to, to formally strength train in what I would call a traditional format. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, you, you have to be able to accept others' opinions and you have to be able to continue learning. And I think that would keep us all at a certain point. If you don't like something, you know, you hear that, oh my God, I hate CrossFit. It's, it's ridiculous. And I'm like, that's your opinion. You wouldn't use it, but it has its part in its niche, right? You can use some of the things in training or as a sport, you know, that I don't like where, you know, people are like, well, I hate those exercises. I don't think any exercises are bad. If you can explain to me why you use them. And then even if I don't like them, respect your opinion and why you use them and everything else, because like you keep bringing up, nobody's forcing you to use anything. You know, I hate when people get mad about, Oh my God, he's doing that. That's terrible. And no, that's just their system. And you should just allow them to do that. Cause it doesn't bother you. It doesn't affect your athletes. And there's what, so you, and what you said, use this, use this phrase. Cause what you just said, this will be summed up. But what I say, there are no bad I, there are no bad exercises. There's just poor application. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's the key, right? I, I, I think every exercise that's taught fundamentally sound has merit, but then it goes back to who is your clientele and is it applicable to what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the snatch when it's performed by very highly competent lifters is one of the coolest exercises to watch. You know, it's I, I call it meathead ballet, how smooth <laughs> it looks. But does an overhead athlete need to do a snatch if their shoulder joint is not prepared? Nope. No. Do they need to jerk? There's other ways to elicit the same type of response that, that a complete full pulling catch snatch can do with some of the teaching points and variations of that type of movement that are in a more safe and applicable manner 
to most athletes. And that's how you have to look at it is how can you break down certain movements to their most remedial patterns? And can you still manufacture their illicit responses and get a similar benefit? And because we're not training those athletes in those sports, of course there is. It's just, it's a, it's an investment of time. It's an investment of energy and it's an investment in demands. And again, we always got to remember what we do is ancillary to the sport of choice. Like you said, when you're talking about CrossFit, one, I think there's a difference between professional CrossFit and CrossFit. Mm -hmm. I learned that the hard way. Uh, I was one of those guys out CrossFit do, 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 right? Like it's bad. And there's certain things like I watch, like for example, the, the high volume of plyometric movements that CrossFit, because of the way I was brought up, I'm not a super fan of, you know, 30 box jumps in a row. But I don't have an issue of 15 doubles with a rest period. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, the, it's the volume manipulation that I don't necessarily agree with. But when you see what they're asked to do, and I know a lot of – People don't like this term, but from a power capacity, the way their sport is so much, there's a, there's a lot of explosive stuff done in a short period of time. Again, I'm not going to, I agree to disagree, but what I've learned of what impresses me about the CrossFit athletes is what we talked about, the relative strength. Yeah. The work capacity and, and their, and their body weight ratios. Like when you're seeing some of these athletes who in male athletes where they generally around 185 pound and the women around 135 and you watch them do these snatch or clean and jerk ladders within 75 seconds. And they're topping out at, in some cases, some of them are former Olympic weightlifters. Anyway, yeah, you're asking them to do some of the, uh, these movements at these loads. And you're like, I don't care what anyone says, like it or not. That's impressive. Yeah, absolutely. The overhead squatting at four. I mean, Frazier and Froning were unbelievable. Four hundred five yeah. overhead squat in a ladder, not yeah. even like sitting down for five minutes. So there's certain, and again, those those athletes train for that specific sport. There's certain things that are applicable for that sport that I'm not doing with the sports that I train. Yep, absolutely. I think application is the biggest thing. Right. You have to if you can find a reason for it or it works, use it. If it doesn't work or it's going to be in a negative, don't use it. Exactly. I think that you, you brought it up. You have to I think the appreciation to the things you touched on with the snatch. Right. Olympic lifts done right by somebody who's strong is amazing to watch. Yeah. It's not necessarily whether you like it or not. You have to respect it. CrossFit. I love watching it because the work capacity, the power, the stuff they do is unbelievable. If you in the fitness thing, I'm like, this is crazy. I'd be I would die. You know, yeah. there's no you know, do 300 pull-ups and then run three miles and then push a 500 pounds. Oh, what was the one they had one year? Was it, I, I, I'm probably wrong, but wasn't it like a 10,000 kilometer row on a composite two row or something where they like on the row for like three hours or something ridiculous. It's like, yeah, again, I, I follow some of them because I can't not believe. Mm -hmm. And what, what does it show you, right? That the, the organism of the human body is something phenomenal. Yes. And if absolutely. you if you treat it right with good nutrition, proper rest, proper recovery, uh, listening to coaches who understand the dynamics of a particular sport, the body has the capable capability to adapt to a lot of things. And that's what I think CrossFit has really opened my eyes to 
is the adaptability, how well a body can adapt to certain modes of training if it's instilled properly. The, 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 the issue is when the average person walks into one of those gyms and they're expecting the, the, the people there are expecting them to mimic what we watch at the games. And that's where the issue is. There's, there's very unique professionals that can do what's asked of them to do versus some of the lay people who come in there because, oh, this is cool. I don't want to be on a treadmill for two hours. I can go do this 30-minute workout. But you're not physically prepared to do that workout. Yeah, and that, that led to the early cases of rhabdo. And I, I'm sure you remember when CrossFit came out, they were giving out rhabdo clown T-shirts. The clown, like the it, clown T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, like it was something to be a, a – like it was almost like an award. That'll kill you. For those out there that don't know what we're talking about, it like was a crusty the clown, right? It was a clown hooked up to a dialysis machine, and it was like a badge of honor. When in reality, rhabdomyolysis is when your body's a killer, breaking yourself down. Yeah, and it you, kills you. shuts down your kidneys. So, yeah. but again, it is like I said, man. There's people who don't like what I do, so it's all good. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, great stuff there. I mean, I think we can chalk it up to if you understand what you're doing and you understand that intent. Of the every exercise, you make that clear. If the intent of the if the goal of the exercise is the intent of what you want the athletes to do, it's it's a something you want to use. Joe, I just want to go through for you. Uh, what piece of advice would you give, or, or maybe top three piece of advice to somebody that wants to get involved in the field now, especially since how much we've come probably in the last ten years? What what things do you think are important? Well, it's 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 actually tougher now because of the supply and demand and it's interesting to watch the growth of this because when I first came in a lot of it was you know ex-athletes that were and I'm talking more about collegiate professional types of strength and conditioning Uh, Mark Verstegen enlightened a lot of us that the private sector does have a role in private sector like I call performance private sector performance facilities, that's you're a private coach, you're a private sector coach. It's not a personal training. Mm-hmm. And Mark's vision with API and now Exos pushed that to the forefront. Now, he wasn't the first. He was the one who had the vision to push it. You had the Mike Boyles, the, the Boletari really helped. A lot of that stuff came out of Boletari's before it was IMG. Lauren Seagrave, Chip Smith, I'm sure I'm going to forget some of the others, but those are guys that I remember that were there before the evolution and the explosion happened. So now we have a viable component in the private sector for those who want to coach athletes. You know, now it's Pete Bomarito and guys like that, that are really driving it home in the private sector. But when it comes to the coaching part, the evolution has really been crazy because there's people now who have no, even high school athletic backgrounds that want to be strength and conditioning professionals. Obviously right now, today in 2021, science is shooting its expert. It's, it's almost on a vertical path. There is no, it's, it's going. So I would tell most of the kids or I call them kids. Most of you coming up. some you're going to need some niche that's related towards whether it's velocity uh, GPS, readiness, 
I mean, those three are kind of my big commons or anything that ties into that <laughs> sleep recovery. You, you need to, you need to be educated in that guys like me. I hate to say it. We're dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. The tradition, you know, I mean, the traditional strength guy, it's a dinosaur. You got, you, you want, it'll be very, very hard. Everybody has that background. What's going to set you apart is all these niches. Oh, and now it's not even a niche. Now they're hiring people specifically for that. Uh, one of my former assistants, Trance, and, and I, and I still believe he works as a, as a strength coach also, but he's gone into, he, he was, and it was a smart move, I think, because of the way things are changing. He moved into the, the GPS and the data collection and, and that, and that could put him in a, in a faster promotion level to oversee some of these departments than, than it would have been if he would have stayed as a full-time strength coach. So those are things moving up. Yeah. Obviously there's, the amount of information that's out there is overwhelming to someone like myself. So, but I think that most of the coaches coming up in this era are well more, are much more well-read in the science than individuals in my era. I've, I've come, you know, I've gone back and forth. I've had little debates, but I'm recognizing at this point in my career and I'm, and my, and my team coaching career could be over, right? I, you, you, no one knows what the future holds, but I, I just think that I have more of an appreciation now than ever of the science part. And that's where, again, for me, my staff will definitely have an expert in science because they can help me as much as I can help them when it comes to floor what it means to be on the floor. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, it'd be a good mix. And that's one of the reasons why in 2003, I broke out and made a relationship with Dr. Matt Ray, who's now at Alabama doing great stuff. Uh, Matt and I hit it off and we teamed up on a bunch of stuff. And I'm extremely excited to see that he is getting to show his talents at the epitome of college football in the United States. So you got you to work hard. You got to make a net. No matter what, it's networking. Mm-hmm. Hear what anyone says. How do you establish a network? You, in this day of social media, reaching out. I'll also say in this day in social media, you know, you jump on bandwagons of people, even myself included, I would tell you. Don't, don't just jump on something. Oh, that's Joe Ken. He's this, that. Peel back the layers of who I am and find out why my opinion could matter versus those people who want to tell you how to do something and then you really dissect who they are and they go, well, they've not, they've not, they're telling me to do something in a, in a role that they've never been in. So where is their experiences that, that, that validate their opinion that tells me that, oh, you should be doing this because I say so not, but now pull back the onion. You're like, well, you're telling me to do something if you've never had these experiences yourself. So where did you come up with this information that you're telling me that this is the proper way to do it? That, that's, that's my thing is in this day and age, the layers of the onion are, are huge in dissecting the information that are coming out. And I think that's something that more people have to understand. Also understand that in this generation, the capabilities of a lot of these people who want to show how much they know and the lack of credit they give to where some of this stuff came from is at an all-time high. I mean, the regurgitation of information 
versus the interpretation of information is something that needs to be very much analyzed by their their mentors and let them understand that come on man there you you can't you can't just continue to quote people or you can't quote people and not give them credit yeah so absolutely those, those are things that and that and that's just learning like i remember i i over credit because i made those mistakes saying something like it was my own knowing it wasn't but because i didn't say i got this from it could come back and haunt you yeah i think that's great advice like i said uh, make sure the people that you're looking up to don't just look really good on Instagram videos, right? Make sure they have the experience and that you can learn from them and that you like the stuff that they do. I think that's great. And the other thing is too, you're right. Make sure you're giving credit because as much as everybody likes to argue, all the stuff that we use, especially even if it's high tech, they developed it in Russia yes. and Eastern Europe. Yes, in somebody, somebody something's out there. Yeah. You know, and again, and there's nothing like I, I'm speaking at a couple of conferences about my lessons. It could be some are like some of them are lessons from as a coach, but they become life lessons is your ability to to outwardly say, I don't know that there's nothing wrong with that vulnerability and humility to say, I don't know that. That's why I said there's certain things I don't care to know, because if I really need to know it, I'll call my buddy who knows it. Yep, but I, I have other I have other things that that I'm good at that people call me about. And that's cool. Right. Mm -hmm. So everybody's got their go to's like I have my internal go to's, which is my my group of people who have worked with me at numerous stops. And then I have my my outside network go to's. And I call, you know, those are my guys that I built relations with from or the women that I built relationships with that have never worked with me. But I highly respect what they have to offer me as a, as, you know, as a lifelong learner and trying to formulate opinions of my own with the, with the proper amount of knowledge needed to formulate that opinion. I think that what one thing that I've seen is be extremely open-minded to all the variations. I, a lot of people like jump on the bed. Well, Louis the best. You should train Louis or you should train DeFranco. You should train house or you should train, five three one or you should train bumper you should train eddie cone hey if that's how you gravitate to and you have a heartfelt belief that that's the proper way to do it great but you need to know everything out there like one one thing that i always said to to our people when i taught them our system was at the end of the day when it's your turn it's got to be yours mm -hmm. so whether you believe in mine so much that you think you're going to carry it with you that's awesome. But if you're going to use a variation of something because you believe in certain things, that's the ultimate. The ultimate is not hammering robots. It's hammering independent thinkers because that's what's going to make them successful when, when they, when it, whether it's Leanne Blinn at Arizona State's Olympic sports head coach or Joe Conley, the football head coach, doing it two different ways that both served under with me, I don't like to say under because it's uh, we we worked as a team, but they served in on my staffs at different times in my career, and they're both attacking their jobs in two different ways when it comes to program design and management. Why? Because they have to be who they are, mm -hmm. and and if you are confident enough in your capabilities as a leader, you will express that. Because in the end, it's it's not how many people you can. 
that follow you that make you a great leader. It's how many leaders that you have developed and they're able to pass those on to those individuals that happen to be a part of that, their staffs moving forward. Absolutely. I think that's an amazing piece of advice. You want to be able to make sure everybody under you can, can go and lead the same way and be successful on their own. You know, you, you want to make sure that the teachings that you're giving them uh, will make them successful in the future. That's just, you know, like I said, man, there's a lot. I've been doing this a long time. I've watched it. I try to be a global visionary, like watching things from outside of just being a meathead weight coach. Like, what does it be like to be a GM? What it like to be a head coach? What's the difference between being the head tennis coach versus the head football coach? What's the difference between being the head water polo coach versus the head track coach? What's it like to be an owner? What decisions an owner has to make? Hard ones. Like, you know, again, uh, Mr. Tepper is the owner of the Carolina Panthers, and he just signed two guys to one-day contracts that were that he cut for the most part, but signed them back because he wanted them to retire as Panthers because of what they accomplished through their career with the Panthers. That's business, right? It is what it is. And those guys understood the business and that's why they had more than willing wanted to do this. And it was a tremendous ceremony. And I'm sure there's others that because of the way the business is that will be invited back at certain times if they left under different circumstances than, than some others. So it's just, like I said, man, there's a lot of things you learn. There's a lot of things you watch, but those are hard decisions, right? You cut two of the greatest players in the history of the team and then you're welcoming them back for a one-day contract so they can dis- so they can retire as a panther. It's a, it's interesting how that works out and it's 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 just things that you learn outside. And that and that's one thing that I've always said is I'm I'm not afraid to say the things that people don't want to talk about when it comes to the profession of strength and conditioning. We're at a very much a crossroads in professional sports and there's a lot of things that are moving in directions that are tough for the strength and conditioning coach. I think we've lost our voice on a lot of things. And, you know, I, I won't go too much more in depth because I don't have a formulated uh, paragraph or something I want to say, and I don't want to say something that might slip up. But I think, you know, that being in baseball for four years, we we're losing our voice in professional sports. Yep. Things are moving in a different direction and, the opinions being formulated, we are becoming, uh, you know, we're dropping down the ladder, I believe. And that's something that is tough to, to see when you spent 30 years, when you've spent 30 of your 32 years in a team sports setting, that's tough to, it's tough to see when you think that you have value and you give a lot back. The, the only, the good thing about it is organizationally, I should say this, that not the good thing. The positive is organizationally, I see that deteriorating, but the relationships with the athletes never will. They know, they know who you are and what you've been able to help them with. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to get into it crazy either, but I will agree hundred percent. I think that, you know, whatever happens with, with everything going on there, you know, we are starting to lose a little bit, but those relationships with the athletes. And I think that the, the relationships that us as a whole are able to gain with the athletes I don't think can be replicated by anybody else. Yeah, it's, and again, if you're doing your job right, the greatest compliment you can get is when a high level athlete, regardless, whether it's the high school, any athlete walks in your office and says, thanks, man, 
we got through this and we're better for it. And you really made it a successful season for what you were able to help me get accomplished. Absolutely. Best thing that's, in the world. That's the, that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with, it's you working together, hand in hand, group by group, team by team. And at the end of the day, somehow or some way, the athletes know that you were trying to provide the best service to them to be successful. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. You know, it's all about them and there's nothing better than watching them perform at a high level or when, you know, years later they, they have that admiration and they hold you in such high regard. It's a, it's cool, man. It's a cool deal, man. And I'm glad that I've had the capability to do what I've done and to be in a position to help others because others have helped me. Uh, I'm a huge believer in the history of what we've done and who is, who has put me in this position from the experiences they've had and what they shared with me or they've shared with us as a group moving forward. I just feel like it's my, my due diligence and my paying back the field for what it's done for me and my family to the best of my capabilities. And and that's, I mean, at the end of the day, like I said, man, I'm very humbled, more so humbled the older you get. It's funny how arrogance and success turns to humbleness and significance. Yep. And it's a, it's been a fun ride and we'll see what, we'll see what the future holds. I mean, I, I, again, people like yourself allowing me to maintain relevancy by having me on podcasts and shows and stuff like that really, you know, it helps you build your confidence that, Hey, you, you did something right. Yeah. And that's, I think, I think in the end, that's all I could really hope for was, that I represent myself, my family, my family, and then my parents and my sister and those who that helped raise me in a positive light. And if I've done that, then I don't have to worry about what I could care less what anybody else thinks. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm so happy you were on. Uh, Joe, for anybody that wants to reach out to you, ask questions more about what you know we spoke about today or just in general, what are the best places to reach you uh, if they want to ask you something? Uh, my, my Twitter and Instagram handle of both at Big House Power. Okay. My website is bighousepower.com. And and again, I, I mean, in this day and age, DMing and stuff is kind of crazy. I mean, we reached out on LinkedIn, which I you know consider the professional networking Facebook. But I, I'm available. Again, I'm I'm one of those guys that tries to respond to the best of my abilities. Am I perfect? Not at all. But if you got if you reach out through me through generally spend a lot of time on more so now LinkedIn. But if you hit me up on Instagram, I'm generally going to respond. And Twitter, not a lot of people do a lot of direct messaging on Twitter. But if you hit me up and we can get a correspondence, we'll figure out a better way to do it. But I, from an introductory standpoint, I'm okay with that. Like those those modalities. Okay. If if something grows into and again, I think it's just my my way of doing things. If something grows former and the and the response and the collaboration grows, then obviously I'll pass on emails and personal cells and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I will put the Instagram handle for you uh, when I promote the episode on the on the podcast Instagram page. Great, appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I really appreciate I, I loved all the insight. I really enjoyed the conversation and I can't thank you enough for, for coming on as a guest. No problem, Joe. And again, thank you, man. And the strength of the, uh, 
what is it? Strength coach experience. Yep. Strength coach experience. I can't, I can't, I get them all mixed up, man. I like the title. So oh, thank I, you. Appreciate I appreciate you having me on and I hope you have continued success with your podcast and continue to fight the good fight, my friend. And like I said, man, New Yorkers now. Exactly. <laughs> Be gone with it.